Hey y'all, welcome to Unbound Love. The meandering conversation of two pastors. I'm Gail. And I'm Kelly. And today we're going to uh, to do the second part of our, our drinking uh, podcast. So if you listened last week, uh, you'll know we talked about um, alcohol and drinking and our favorite drinks and blah, blah, blah. And uh, today we're going to talk about the other side of uh, drinking. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, uh, when when drinking is a problem. When uh, when alcohol is a problem, or even when uh, anything is a problem, well, recovery is something that happens uh, for anyone who is who is, has an addiction and is looking to move past that addiction. And um, I may not be using any of the right words, but we'll get them corrected as we go along today. Uh, we are joined by Meg McBride, who is uh, with the Faith Community of Hope Recovery. And uh, which is here in Wilmington, which is where we are, and uh, it is co- uh, connected with the United Methodist Connection. And so, welcome, Meg. Hi, welcome. Oh, hello. Thanks. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so we're so glad that you're here. Um, so the whole whole thing of your church um, is uh, about recovery and people who are in recovery. And so um, I, I will full on admit I don't know a whole lot about recovery. Um, Aside from their 12 steps, but I don't know what they are. And maybe you don't even do 12 steps. Maybe you do something different. So tell us about it. I think I'll start first with my own recovery journey. Yeah. So 20 years ago, I couldn't get my life right and couldn't figure things out and didn't even realize that alcohol was a problem for me. So I thought if I could buy a house that I would be okay. And I went and bought a house, and my boys at the time, their dad lived in Florida, and so they had gone to stay in Florida with him. I was off that day. I was going to go out and work in my garden, and so it really was the perfect day for me. And about 10 a.m., walked into the house and opened the fridge because I was going to have a beer. And I heard in my spirit a voice that said, you need to go to AA. Hmm. And literally was at an AA meeting later that day and discovered after a few weeks of sitting in the meetings that my life was unmanageable. And that part I totally understood more unmanageable internally. Externally, I was making it work. I had a good job. I was paying bills. I bought my house, right? Didn't have great romantic relationships, but, um, I was, I was doing okay, but there was this sense in myself that something was deeply wrong with me. I didn't feel okay. I felt like I was always not living up to what I would see in my friends and people that I was comparing myself to and realized that drinking was a problem. I was raised in a very strict family and at 16 went to a party and had my first beer And ended up being date raped that night. Mm -hmm. And you'd think that that was enough to make a connection that maybe drinking isn't a good idea. But would continue to drink and end up in situations where things would happen and I was never able to put two and two together. And so right from the get-go for me, drinking actually enabled me to be more of myself. I didn't drink for oblivion. I actually drank to feel more of a sense of who I was and to be able to kind of come out of a shell and live more fully into 
this role or idea that I had about myself. It gave me courage around boys. It allowed me to be funnier. Um, it gave me a sense, a sense of self. And so that became the pursuit in drinking. And I pursued that until I couldn't pursue it anymore. Like until there was an absolute spiritual experience that let me know that we were done. We were done with this. And so many years later, right, being involved in Alcoholics Anonymous for 10 years when I lived in Pennsylvania and doing 12 steps many times, <laughs> uh, sponsoring others, I moved to North Carolina and did AA here for a little while, but really got involved in a celibate recovery. I was having a little trouble with my mom and I thought, eh, I'll go to celebrate recovery and try that out. And I had re-engaged with Christianity again. So that was, that was a favorable idea to, to do a Christian version of 12 steps and just got caught up in celebrate recovery and loved it. And so for six years did celebrate recovery at Myrtle Grove Presbyterian, decided it was time to step away from that. And in that season of not being active as a recovery leader, felt like I was supposed to do something with a recovery church, even though I had no idea what that was or what that would look like. And so four years later, five years later, here we are. We've got a recovery church in Wilmington that we've just started in October. And uh, it initially was created in mind for people with 12-step experience. But what started to happen as I started to think about it and build it up and write things down on paper, I've started to like collect a peripheral mm. recovery people. And so people that have had addiction in their families and not just alcohol and drug addiction, right? Um, food addiction, codependency, pornography. And then also I've got some grief people hanging around me now too. So even the idea of recovering from grief and also a woman that's been attending our congregation. She was diagnosed with a debilitating form of arthritis when she was a child. And so she's recovering from a lifelong illness. And so now mm. we've got like that aspect of recovery. And so these people are defining recovery for themselves. Many of them with 12 step experience coming out of secular 12 step groups like AA and NA and, many from Celebrate Recovery as well. But I think what's unifying us together is we all have this deep desire to know wholeness. And one of the ways you can do that is through recovery. And so that's kind of been a little shift in the way that we've been, or we're starting to journey together. We don't identify when we're together um, I don't say, hi, I'm Meg, I'm an alcoholic. I just say, hi, I'm Meg, I'm a person in recovery. And everyone else as well also wow. responds that way. Okay, so, well, I've known you a while. I've never heard that version of your story before. So I'm, I'm standing here a little caught. Um, because I know the Meg that takes care of people i know the meg that loves and has this open-hearted love um i don't think that i i don't 
I just, I'm trying to envision your walk before I met you now. And it is pretty amazing. You said something about trying to find wholeness. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's something that we're all, I think that that is actually one of the best descriptions of faith I've ever heard, is trying to find wholeness. We always start with, oh, we're broken, but the brokenness isn't the important thing. It's the trying to find wholeness. Can you talk a little bit more about that idea and where it came from? Yeah. I go on silent retreat to Mebkin Abbey. I try to go twice a year. And so in one of my, I've been going there, I think since 2016. And so you go there and for four or five days, you really don't talk to anybody. The only words you speak are either to yourself, which is a lot for me, or you're praying in church with the, with the monks there. And so when I started to go to Mebkin Abbey, I started to have a revelation about my trauma. So I was raised in a very strict household uh, by a very angry step-parent and had this deep sense that I didn't belong in our family. Uh, I was born to a mother, you know, that I never knew my father. I was conceived out of wedlock. A whole story was constructed around my birth and lies told and came into the world with this like false narrative about what had really happened. And then my mom met my stepdad when I was five. And she would later say, like, nobody wanted to marry women with children. And Mm -hmm. so when I met him, I felt like I better go for this, right? And not being permitted to ask questions growing up, I grew up with this sense of, like, a lost identity because I had this last name, McBride, which was my real father's name. But I wasn't permitted to ever ask questions about it or to inquire. That would hurt feelings. That was not appropriate. And then my parents, my stepfather and my mom, had other children together. And I really started to feel like an outsider. And so it was revealed to me in quiet time at Mebkin that my deepest desire, one of my deepest desires was to feel like I belonged, which really is about wholeness, right? Mm -hmm. To feel like this, like you really are okay wherever you find yourself. And I had, when I first got sober, I worked with a woman who was Jewish from Israel, who also was trained in the Lakota way. And so she was a Native American medicine woman. Um, And she worked on me for 10 years. Her and I worked together for 10 years. She was my mentor. She taught me different ways. Um, I studied Reiki with her to the master level. Um, She would take me to fire ceremonies and full moon ceremonies and all kinds of things. And she said to me at one point, Meg, I really feel like you're a healer. And I've been thinking about the people that have said things to me in my past nice things and affirming things, but also things that are hard as well, like people that said some really cutting things and how those voices have really drawn me closer to my calling. And so she's one of those really trusted people that when she said that, and she said it, you know, 20 years ago, but now that I reflect on it, like there was some real truth in that. And so the way that I live into that 
role right now as healer is to help people find their wholeness because wholeness is my deepest desire. And so what draws me the most deeply towards God to be whole and healed is the thing that I do internally and the thing that I now will do externally in my work. And then also at Mebkin Abbey, I had this revelation that I was an advocate. And so that's really connected to my voice, not having a voice as a child. No one had a voice in our family, but my father, like your voice didn't matter. You were supposed to be seen and not heard. If you had feelings, they just weren't permitted to be expressed. You know, we got sent to our rooms. We got punished if we were emotional. And so being an advocate, right? What does that look like? It, and it's also very, very, very deeply tied to my first husband was a hemophiliac who received blood transfusions before blood was safe. Mm. And when we were 24 years old, he was diagnosed with HIV AIDS. And so in the early 90s, being hospitalized for AIDS-related conditions, there were nurses that refused to treat him yeah. because AIDS was so, you know, it was new. It wasn't in our town. And I learned how to speak up for him in order for him to receive care. And advocacy would become a theme in my work, working with homeless hospital patients for several years and advocating for them for benefits and things like that. And so that's another part um, of what's been revealed to me, right? Of And then the last part for me is teacher. And that comes out of just a love of learning and a, and a gift for teaching and a desire to share knowledge with people. Because I think that knowledge... And communication and interacting and creativity and imagination and discussion and communication does lead us to spiritual revelation. And it's like a, we have to start somewhere. Um, and so those are kind of like the three areas that I'm existing in right now and the way that that role is expressing, those three roles are expressing themselves right now as pastor. And all of that really drives towards this idea of helping people discover their wholeness, however that looks for them. Like, it's not for me to define that. It's not for me to give rules around that. But it is, I think, for me to offer space and opportunity, especially safe, uh, safe space where people can explore this idea of like, where really is my wholeness? You know, where is my belonging? And a lot of that too comes from just like, I'm so sick and tired of taking the blame for the sin of the world as a female. Like I'm so <laughs> over it. Yes. You should be gay. Yeah. I should go, be gay. Let's, let's just jump in there. You never know. <laughs> You know. like, like, like really like like all, we carry the sin of the world yeah you know, yeah i'm sorry i do, do i that. digress what if jeff what something would happen to jeff <laughs> maybe i'll just be gay i don't know yeah, I, i'm going with that. just we, not having we, a relationship you just do those stupid things <laughs> in your mind right yeah. i'm just gonna say we don't share clothes yeah <laughs> <laughs> you'll be surprised at the number of women who say that oh if i were gay we would just share clothes i'm like no no, no, that's just not how that works. I used so to have sorry. a friend that used to say, Meg, you dress like a lesbian. Are you sure? No. I'm like, not right now, I'm not lesbian. Who can ever um, be sure? <laughs> my friend Catherine. Um, 
I've yeah, been- like I just want to do like there's this book out there which I always say I'm going to read called Original Blessing, which mm. just flips all of Genesis on its head. Like yes. we were created as these incredible, awesome creatures and beings, and let's just get back to that and figure out what that is. Like that's yeah, that's what I want to do. Yeah, I say all the time, and you know, like God created us good. Mm-hmm. Like God looked at creation and said, "This is good." And, yeah, I get that we muck that up, like, all the time. But at the heart of it, we are good. And God said so. Um, We are good. And Mm -hmm. so that has to count for something, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I want people to remember that. And when you come into recovery, you've gone and done so many things. I mean, the things that you've done with your body, right? The choices that you've made, the sacrifices you've made to get high or drunk, you know, you've given so many parts of yourself away over years and in a variety of situations. And I used to hear in CR, like, I'm at war with my flesh. You know, my body is bad and I have all these cravings and these Mm. urges and desires, but there's not solution in continued war with ourselves. Like that's not going to work because eventually you're not going to be able to take it. And you're certainly not going to probably, the easiest thing to do is go and get high or go and have Mm -hmm. a drink when that Mm -hmm. pressure is really on. So let's stop that and just let's start talking about all the goodness and all the incredibleness. And so I think I'm here to just help people remember that. And again, it's the thing that I want to remember myself the most. Like I need that healing for myself. And so why not do that internal work and just share it with other people? kind of like oh wow this is kind of a cool job like (laughs) starts with you that's one of the things that as a pastor it starts with you in your own walk and that's how you show others um i we've been having a discussion among pastors forever about not being born broken like this idea that the church some churches tell you that you're born broken and born in sin but no that your brokenness comes from the world and it comes from the people you meet and the events that happen in your life you're born in love, created in an awesome way, and then the world breaks you down a little bit, and then you spend so much time recovering from that. So as you're talking about that wholeness, and I like celebrating the joy part, the, the love part, because that warms and heals the brokenness. So I, I want to I wanna take us back to your call story, or your, your, your story that, um, that moves you into recovery. And kind of relate that to other people. Um, so in your story, um, you're on a perfect day, um, you know, 10 a.m. I mean, because who doesn't love a little day drinking, right? And um, An alcoholic know, loves yeah, a little I mean, day drinking, I mean, let me tell you. And, and some yes. of the rest of us too. But, you know, so um, so so you end up, you, you reach into, into your fridge for the beer and, and this this revelation comes to you that says, yeah, this is a problem. And I need to do something about it. Um, I'm imagining that for a lot of people who who walk into recovery or walk away from substance abuse or away from whatever, uh, have a long longer uh, come come to that moment um, in the you know uh, realization that hey I need to go somewhere. I need to look at this as an issue in my own life. I mean, 
you know, I'm a big girl. Um, probably my relationship with food could use a little, you know, a little something, something. Um, but that's a long, that's a long road to get to that point. You know, there's the, oh, I should do something about that. Oh, I really should do something about that. Oh, I really, really should. And then, you know, eventually the shoulds give way to actual action. Um, so how, how do you help people to get to the um, shoulding, away from the shoulding, and into the actual, or is there just, it has to come from you? Yeah, so that's the, the mystery of recovery, right? When someone comes to that point where whatever's happening in their lives is enough for them to make a choice that then leads to a pretty significant change. So for me, I'd actually been dabbling in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous for two years prior to Alcoholics Anonymous because I had a bad relationship. Mm. You know, I had an affair with a man and finally left my husband who was the husband that was sick, you know, so there was a lot of like guilt and shame around that. And then finally he left his wife. And then finally we moved in together and we must have been living together for like two months. And he came home and said, I've met someone else. And so I'm leaving (laughs) you. (laughs) And I mean, that was like five years of self-will to make that happen. And for some reason, I sat on the toilet in my bathroom in Pennsylvania with the phone book on my lap, open to the blue pages and called over an ears anonymous and a woman answered the phone and told me when the next meeting was. And I cannot tell you how I knew about Overeaters Anonymous. I have no idea why I called, but um, would go to Overeaters Anonymous and dabble. And of course they say, you know, you shouldn't have alcohol in your food plan because it has a ton of sugar in it. And I was like, nah, forget that. <laughs> right. This is, this is Meg's food plan. Um, so I've been exposed to recovery ideas, mm. but I wasn't ready to make the huge change. I didn't work steps. I had a sponsor, but we talked about what I'd eaten all day long, you know, so it was more like a diet, a way to control my diet. And so I think that you do get exposed to things when you're in need of recovery, whether you want to recognize them or not, whether they're consequences, whether they're concerns of people, whether stuff has just come by you that, you know, you've glanced at but not given much credit to. And when you really understand that, you're always looking backwards and saying, oh my gosh, there was that person or that thing or... I was in jail and somebody said, hey, man, did you ever try AA or, you know, Um, but I do think that there is for each of us one defining moment. And that is only I mean, it's total grace Hmm. because you have to know that moment in your own self. Um, And for me, I don't know what it was about that day. And there's a little more to that story. You know, I heard that voice, um, which You know, I had a psychologist ask me if I was schizophrenic one time because I heard a voice tell me to go to AA. And I was like, no, dude, it's a spiritual experience. Like, do you know what those are? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I called the only person I knew 
the only person in the whole world that knew where AA was, was my friend Dina from OA, which is what I believed. Like, you know, Dina had been mentioning in meetings, she was dabbling in AA. So I called Dina and she answered the phone and I was like, Dina, I got to go to AA. And she's like, okay, well, I think there's a meeting at noon. Will you come and meet me? And it was like 20 of 12. I jumped in the car with garden, you know, outfit Mm -hmm. on with dirty knees. And I mean, I just went And again, like, that's a power greater than myself driving me. Like, I was just caught up in the moment and this willingness that really did not come from my own power, right? Like, something was guiding me. We get there to the meeting location. She's made an error. It's not at that place. And so she invites me to coffee. And we go. And I'm just, like, crying out you know, all my woes and blues. And it it was the perfect day at 9am. It's no longer the perfect day anymore. Right. And, um, I look down and she's got bandages on her wrists and Dina was always wearing lots of bracelets. That was one of her, she doesn't have her bracelets on. She was kind of famous for those Pandora, Mm -hmm. you know, or whatever those beads were then. And I'm like, what's wrong with your wrists? And she's like, oh, I've been in the state mental health hospital for a couple months because I tried to commit suicide back in February. I mean, it's June. And she's like, they just let me out on a week-long weekend pass. And I walked in the house and you called. Oh, wow. Wow. I was like, what? She hadn't slept in her own bed or been home with her husband. And like... When I think about the 12th step, which is, you know, we carry this message to others who are still suffering. Dina is the most like predominant example of that, that I probably will ever encounter in my life. That she literally put her bags down and turned around and came and met me. And that night she took me to my first AA meeting. So she came out twice for me that day. And uh, finally she was like, Meg, I gotta go back to the hospital. Like I can't keep taking you to AA meetings and I had to go by myself. Um, and I was scared to death. I was, I, I didn't want to admit alcohol was a problem for me. I knew I needed to be there in some way, shape or form. Um, and I started sitting in the very back row thinking I was hiding. And at that particular meeting, 5 PM sunlight of the spirit, 530 in Pennsylvania, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, all the old timers sat in the back row. So here I am like shimmying down in the back row with Rhubarb Jim, that was his name. Um, And uh, they were like, who does she, you know, like, doesn't she know that this is an old timers row, which Mm -hmm. AA, we don't have assigned seating, but in some meetings it works like that. And one day uh, this woman, Joanne, walked up to me and she was like, you don't have a sponsor, do you? And I was like, nope. And she's like, I'm your new sponsor. And she's like, this is how it rolls. We're going to do step work. You're going to be at the Italian restaurant at this address every Sunday night at five o'clock. You're going to have your work done. I'm going to give you your assignments. And if you ever miss not there or don't have your work done, you're fired. Hmm. And I was there every time. And so like, not only was I having my own revelation about addiction and my problems, because it's, it's so much more. The AA Big Book says liquors are, bottles are only a symptom. We have to get down to the causes and conditions, right? Mm. The bottle is up at the top. Like, there's so much underneath that has to be rooted out. Like, 
Um, and the steps help you do that, right? But then you'll also need a guide to take you through the steps. And so I just kept showing up and stuff just kept unfolding and opening up and I got caught up in it, um, which was a, which was a good thing, right? The step work is the best homework I've ever done in my whole life. Like 100% full on in with everything I had. And it worked. Like I've, I did the steps and I've never had a drink in over 20 years. So you said something a month or two ago to me that keeps sticking in my head. We all are in churches where you'll have that person walk in from the street or that person no one knows and maybe they have alcohol in their breath or they're acting a little weird and everyone in the church panics and then the people are assigned to that person and then... It's the normal way of churches. But you said when your space, you create intentionally to be safe so people can show up how they are. And as I'm hearing your story, that kind of comes from your story, your experience. How do you, if we are wanting to replicate that or we're wanting to make our environments more open, whether it's church, our home, our lives, how do we not be afraid to accept for people where they are in a moment, in that moment? And why do you do that? I do it because you have to have, you have to let people have their own experience, right? Um, pain is a great motivator and consequences are, are good motivators as well, right? Um, and we don't have to fix all that stuff. Like we can let people, you have to have your bottom experience because if you don't, you're not gonna, you don't get solution until you have that. And so I get really annoyed with codependents, sorry, that are trying to like control and manage people's lives and fix it and pay for the stuff and drive them around and no, like stop doing that, like give people the opportunity to be at the end of their own resources, because that's when you realize like, I'm a mess. I'm also a big believer in third party help. So I don't feel like the people closest to us can really help us. It always has to almost be a stranger that comes in, which is basically the beauty of AA and how AA was founded, like two strangers helping each other became what we now know as Alcoholics Anonymous. I do realize, so if I had someone in Hope Recovery Church that was outright drunk and, you know, falling down or vomiting or something, of course I have to, like, take some action <laughs> to help that person or relocate that person. But other than that, like, if someone's not causing any harm or they just want to sit, like, it's that simple thing, like, give them a cup of cold water and let them stay, like... And this comes out of working in homelessness, you know, like, I mean, people that are experiencing homelessness just get to show up however they are. And I hate to tell you, but most of them are drunk. A lot of them mm-hmm. are drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, haven't had a bath in a really long time. Like you get used to sitting in church. When I went to church with homeless individuals, with people that are pretty drunk and a little fragrant, and it, it just becomes part of the experience. 
I mean, I guess the question is like, why are we so uncomfortable with that? Like, what are we, what statements are we making in our own minds about people that show up like that? And that kind of leads me to like this idea of needing to be an advocate for people in recovery because I start, you know, this church built, we just got a church building and it's in the neighborhood I actually live in. And my hairdresser comes to my church and she has our sticker on her booth of her haircut booth. And she had someone in the chair the other day and they said, oh, like, are you familiar with that church? And she said, yeah, I am. She doesn't break her anonymity at work. And uh, they're like, yeah, the whole neighborhood's going to be run with addicts now. Hmm. And I was like, wow, like you should be lucky that your whole neighborhood is going to be run with addicts <coughs> because they'll be the ones that'll come over and power wash your house and maybe cut your grass because we all just want to serve, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Um, so I feel very safe with with my church full of addicts, uh, people have said, oh, like, aren't you worried that people are going to steal stuff out of your church? No. And if they steal it, we'll just go buy more stuff. Like, what are they going to steal? Toilet paper? Paper towels? And, you know, I've been in churches where we lock up the toilet paper Mm -hmm. because we don't want anyone taking it home. Well, I like toilet paper, and I'm sure if I didn't have any, I would like to get my hands on some, or paper towels, or all these silly little rules that we create. And I don't understand why. Like, I've always, like, where I'm located downtown, and we work a lot together with the um, houseless and transient community there. And when my kid was little, um, him and his friend would leave the church while I was working, go walk around downtown. And, you know, he's 12, 13, 14. And people would be always like, aren't you scared to send him downtown? I was like, no, because we know someone sitting on every corner, like at the library, he walks by and they're like, Hey little man. And like, he has eaten meals with them and done work with them. And so it, for me, my experience is that I often feel safer in spaces like that than I do in the more affluent spaces, because there is a realness that happens when you go through trauma when you go through hard life experiences and you begin to share in recovery you begin to share in community I think there's something that is real and for me is almost safer like I am and this may be wrong you guys can call me out on it but i I trust that experience a lot more than I trust maybe sitting in a boardroom with a bunch of executives and, and people who have stuff that they're not having to face or not having realities they're not having to face. Are there times when you have not felt safe? Not around recovery people, but definitely when I started work, you know, in homelessness, I attended a church where most of the congregation was experiencing homelessness and there was a breakfast on the waterfront, I think once a week. And the pastor was like, you should come to breakfast. And I was like, oh no, I'm not coming to breakfast. I don't do homelessness. And he was like, oh, okay, well then you really need to come to breakfast, right? And so I like to be challenged. Um, not big on being a pussy. So I want (laughs) to go and do it. And, uh, I was like, okay, I'll come to breakfast. And I didn't want to go to breakfast. Like I was really uncomfortable. I was, I was afraid. I didn't know what to say. 
And he was like, just ask people where they grew up. And that one question is enough. Like, I would just sit down with people and be like, hey, are you from Wilmington? No, I'm not from Wilmington. Oh, where'd you grow up? And they would just talk and talk and talk and talk. And I'd drink my coffee. And, you know, in recovery, my sponsor used to say, this is the progression. First of all, you have to. You have to do this work, right? And then eventually you'll want to do this work. And then you might like to do this work. And there'll be a point where you love to do this work. And that was my progression in homelessness. Um, You know, then I wanted to go to breakfast. And then I really enjoyed going to breakfast. And then I really loved going to breakfast. Because over that time, there was, of course, interaction. And I was getting to know people. And people were becoming more than their labels, right? They were becoming like friends Mm -hmm. and colleagues or whatever. Like I was getting to know them as they were getting to know me. Um, And I think that working in homeless service, I would eventually become an advocate for homeless hospital patients. I would get hired uh, by our local hospital, a nonprofit that worked with our local hospital and was an agent of the hospital. And me and my partner would walk into homeless camps and I never felt afraid because I had a mission and a purpose to fulfill a need, right? To help people access benefits, needed benefits for their health care. And we did social security benefits for income. And I just always felt like we were there for the right reasons and the right motives to be helpful. And I mean, there were some people who were like, hey, don't come in my camp. And we were like, okay, no problem. Do you want to come out? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I've never been afraid around recovery people. Never. Mm-mm. So I, I had the experience with, with the the breakfast group. Um, every Monday morning, um, I would go have breakfast with them and, and provide food every Monday morning uh, for over a year. And, uh, you know, you get to know people and you, um, had a really cool experience, um, uh, a few months ago back in the summer, uh, where I was walking in Carolina beach and two guys who were brothers who had been a part of that community. And, um, uh, all of a sudden, you know, they're like, Gil, Jen. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know? And so, you know, hugs all around, um, they're now living in Raleigh and had come down for a visit. And so, I mean, it was just like, but they were so joyful to see us and we were so joyful to see them and to see the life that, that where life is taking them, uh, from their, um, being unsheltered and living on the streets to, um, to living in a place in Raleigh and having, uh, you know, a life that they were excited about and, so it was, it was, you know, anyway, kind of a cool story that yeah. that kind of happened this summer or that. I think I know those brothers. Yeah, I think you probably do. Um, I think the flip side of that is, right, that we want people to grow in their lives yeah. and for their situations to increase. And the other half of that work, which working in homelessness, but also in recovery, is that there's also a very sorrowful and heartbreaking part of work like that, mm-hmm. like recovery and homelessness that oftentimes there are tragedies and things don't go the way we hope, Mm -hmm. um, which leaves us with a lot of questions. And so particularly this year, there's been a lot of overdoses, a lot of death. 
And every time that happens in the recovery community, people are left with this, like, why did this happen? And I don't have the answers for that. None of us will ever know, like, why. And so part of this kind of work, too, is also navigating those spaces as well, um, which I'm comfortable with the space of suffering, interestingly, which is, again, looking back, like, at my life and the things that I've been through. I find it interesting and curious and also amazing how just like some of the things that have been really hard for us become for us true assets that we can help other people navigate. Sure. And so, I, I, The statistic today that came out today was more overdoses in the last year than ever uh, in history. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, I think pandemic adds into that. I think that pandemic has been, um, it's difficult for mental health for, for people who are, are pretty mental health, mentally healthy, um, but um, you know, for people who are are struggling, and I think that goes back to a comment that you made earlier, where you were saying that um, you know, there's always so much more. Like the bottle, the bottle is the top, and there's so many layers of so many things that are happening underneath that that get to that point, and uh, I think that's true for all of us. You know, there's the the people that we see the people that we project and then there's all the rest of us um there's that um you know iceberg kind of thing you know you get get the tip of the iceberg that you see above the water and then all the big stuff that's happening under the surface yeah i mean i think we really have to start having conversations about trauma Mm. and what happened to us and not judging trauma like my trauma and your trauma could be very different in the scope of it or the nature of how it happened but trauma affects people i think pretty universally despite how we're going to measure it like oh this happened to you well that's a 10 that happened to you that's a one like i can't i don't think we can talk about trauma like that because we're all wired differently Mm. but i think we all can connect and find unity in our suffering and what happened to us Um, And then for me, like, I know that my suffering is, is an asset, which is so like weird to say, but I mean, really my suffering of being an alcoholic is what's brought me into my current work. Mm. Um, And for that, I'm grateful. You know, I, I don't ever feel like, oh, I didn't deserve that. Or, you know, like. I used to feel as a child like God was punishing me. Mm -hmm. I I was raised Catholic and I do appreciate the Catholic Church now, but I really misunderstood the Catholic Church as a child. And I take some responsibility for that and I blame my parents for some of it and I blame the Catholic Church for the other part of it. Um, (laughs) Plenty of blame. Yeah, they're just like, we're all going to be equally responsible for that. Um, And so, you know, the God of my understanding was punishing God and you know, I was going to go to hell when I was six or whatever. So weren't we all, what the fuck? Just, just, (laughs) let's just go to hell. If I'm going to hell, I'm going to go to hell. Right. And so, you know, where's my hand basket. Yeah. That was part of it. (laughs) I mean, I went to college and I was like free for all, you know, away from them. And I'm just going to do whatever I want. Um, which doesn't help a kid who's a potential alcoholic when Mm -hmm. she's 17 years old. But, um, so yeah, I, can, yeah. can I can I jump us back to uh, you're talking about measuring trauma 
and um, uh, my history with my parents. Uh, my mom was injured in an automobile accident, and um, uh, we learned that she has a very high pain threshold. And um, so my sister and I, you know, they they always come into the hospital room and they ask, you know, like on the pain scale, where are you? And my mom would answer, and then invariably we would follow it up with, but she has a very high pain tolerance. And eventually, you know, some nurse or might have been a doctor who said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what her pain tolerance is. It's what she perceives as her number that matters. And so what you perceive as what her pain level is, is totally irrelevant because it's her number and she gets to name it for what it is for her. And whether this is intolerable for someone else or it's very tolerable for someone else doesn't matter because all that matters is for her. And I think for all of us in our trauma scale, it is it is the same thing. Like, you can't measure trauma for anyone else. It is their trauma scale and how it affects them and how they walk through life with it is all that matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I totally agree with that. And I think I think part of it also is your experiences, the, your reaction to trauma also is individualized. Mm-hmm. It's one of the hard parts, I think, of ministry is that someone can come in and have something that you think would just be traumatizing and it doesn't bother them, but the fact that there is a woodpecker outside of their house is driving them crazy. It's like how we react to situations based on our trauma and what actually our responses are and it it comes across i mean even in grieving you were talking about Mm -hmm. grief the way we grieve is so different it's hard to recognize and say this is what i have to fix and so it puts you in a place where you realize you just have to show grace it's whatever that problem is you don't have to fix it you just have to as going back to what you said help them find what wholeness means to them that's very profound. Yeah. I think the other part with recovery churches, though, with that grace also comes responsibility, right? And so we all believe, those of us that are in recovery, like you just can't walk around whining like the victim forever, right? At some point, you have to have a process where you take responsibility. And that's, I mean, that's the 12 steps. That's steps four through nine, where you just own your part. Um, and it, Ideally, if it works properly, you've owned it without shame, right? And you've just said, look, this is the stuff I did. You go out and make amends for it as best you can to your best ability. And you move on with your life trying to help and serve others with this new information you have about yourself. And so I do think that while grace and meeting people where they're at is absolutely necessary, where I come And again, this is because of the way that I came up through recovery. I always will bring challenge. Mm. And we would say in Celebrate Recovery, in our old Celebrate Recovery, God loves you enough not to leave you where you are. And so, yes, this is very real for you right now. And I see what you're going through. And can we not together take a step forward? And what would that look like for you? Um, and this might be a helpful suggestion of how that, you know, this might have helped me. And you lay some options out on the table and the person says, I just can't step forward right now. And we say, okay, 
we'll see you next week. You know, like, or, or yes, I would like to take a personal inventory. Okay, here's pen and paper. You know, let's meet next week and you've written a few things down, you know. And so it's constantly like that ebb and flow in that little dance. And man, I've had star students, like I'm doing air quotes. You've had that person that's just like, I will do anything to mm-hmm. experience some healing. And they just run with it. And your heart sings every time you see them. And they're just an incredible gift, right? And they go ahead and then realize their gifting and their calling. And they just become these wonderful people that are giving back out of a humility and a gratitude. And then you have other people that just never take a step forward and you lament for them you cry over them and every time they come back around you're like hey good to see you again you know and and that's where your prayer for hope is like maybe this time but maybe not but maybe not so i i hear in that for all of us um you know we live in grace we're we're all methodist um, so grace is like a big part of, of what we believe in, what we rely on. Um, but very rarely do we couple that with a responsibility. Um, and I think that that's a, a, a big piece that we don't uh, address often enough. That yes, there is grace for you and there's grace for me and there's grace for everyone. But in that we all have responsibility. Um, and, and that responsibility moves us into caring for ourselves and for others and for not just depending on the grace, but, but moving forward with whatever that is, um, that it has to be more than just relying on grace. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think we have a responsibility to, of course, love God and love neighbor, right? Mm -hmm. And you can't really do either well if you're so bound up in your selfishness and self-centeredness and self-pity and whatever else. There has to be a movement from inward to outward. Mm -hmm. And Kelly, you said earlier, like all of our work starts inside. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a believer that any problem with an organization, you need to look to the leader to see what's going on with them first. I, I would bet that something internally with them is off, right? And so as a pastor, like, I think for me, that has to be part of my work all the time. I always have to be looking and curious about what's going on with me in order to lead well. Um, and then as you work on the inside, all of a sudden, all these things start to express themselves outwardly in a helpful way. If you're, you know, if you're, if you've got a process and a method and a spiritual guide and accountability partners and all of these things in place, right, to help you with your growth and your and your role that you've been called to. Um, yeah, so, yeah. It's not just mm-hmm. about me and my stuff and my comforts and, I mean, I've been called to help other people, but it's so intimately connected to my own work. Yeah. I think that's true for all of us. Yeah, we, we say, and we've said it before on here, I think we often preach sermons to ourselves. I think most of our sermons we preach to ourselves. Yeah. And other people just happen to hear and maybe something clicks. And I think we find sometimes as a pastor you're elevated 
you're, you're put on this pedestal because people want something to achieve, but it becomes a more intimate and real relationship when that pedestal is broken down. And one of the, I mean, I, I know, and like when I'm preaching, when I'm teaching, I'm always sharing bits and parts of my story, just as you did today, because that allows this open communication instead of me being something. I think that's one of the problems we see a lot with the world right now, with our Christian, I'll do air quotes, friends, <laughs> is that they want to be on that pedestal and they want to dictate what you should do instead of saying, well, here's my walk, walk beside me and let's figure it out. I think what you're creating, the environment at um, Hope is this environment of we're all mutual. Even from the beginning, you when you started the church, when you were kind of creating the church, can you give us a glimpse of what that looked like? Because it was pretty different than a lot of churches. Yeah, I mean, I'm a recovery person, first and foremost, that's been called to be a recovery pastor. And my spiritual director said, this is a huge thing in your life right now. And you don't have to figure it out, but you need to be aware of this constantly. And so, again, my desire in the space that I currently worship, Hope Recovery Church, is that I get to be just as much a part of it because I'm a recovery person in need of recovery, further recovery, growth, healing, wholeness, as well as the person that this is what I tell them. I was like, look, I'm just like one of you guys. Like, I need this too. If they come knocking at the door and someone going to get in trouble, it's going to be me. They're going to talk to me. <laughs> so I'll take the hits like that. But when we're here together, like, I won't even stand on a different level. Like, we gather together on the same floor space. We sit in a circle. Um, sometimes I'll be in the middle of that circle to deliver a message. And we have conversational preaching. So... We put a Bible story, we read a Bible story together, and I always choose ones that kind of are complete in their, are kind of like more complete where they have like a beginning, a middle, and an end, you know. Um, I'm staying away from the text that's really difficult. And so like we did Bartimaeus the Blind Beggar the other week. And what do you guys see in this story? And people are just calling things out. We write it all down on a whiteboard and, you know, we just discuss it as a group and that way all voices make the sermon together. Like, have I studied it? Yes. Have I read the commentary? Yes. Have I prayed over it? Yes. But it's our message. It's not, even though my, my message is inside of it and underneath of it and around it and on top mm -hmm. of it, um, I don't want to be the only voice. And I can say that coming out of church environments where there was only one voice and they were leader centric. And I never want to be in an environment like that again. Um, and I also say that as a recovery person, because unity is one of the spiritual foundations of, of the 12 step programs, right? That we say principles before personalities. And so, you know, the mission and the group as a whole is always kind of held above individuals, not that individuals aren't important, right? And I think the way that you get that kind of like unity is to give every person opportunity to be a part of. I went to traditional church this past weekend with my mother-in-law and I was like, man, this is terrible. <laughs> like, you know, 
it's just not me anymore. Um, and that's okay. Like we need different flavors, right? And, uh, a wise person in new faith communities said to me, you need to plant this church to leave it in five years so that you walk away and they don't miss a beat, right? You've got these rhythms in place and these systems and these processes, you know, that people are so familiar with because they've participated for all this time that you just blink out and they just keep going. And I think that that was a very, very good piece of advice. So we're, we're coming to the end of our time here and it's gone by really, really quick. Um, but as we leave, I, I'm, I'm going to invite you to share some resources um, that, um, that people might, uh, we will, we will drop them into the show notes so that you can, uh, you can click on links and, and get where you need to go. But, um, do you have resources that you'd like to share? Um, uh, Hope, Hope, Hope Recovery Church, um, which is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, yeah, we have a website. It's not very good, but it's <laughs> www.hoperecoveryilm.org. Okay. Um, of course, we have Facebook page, Hope Recovery ILM. Another resource that I've been spending a little time with is a, is a place called 514 Revolution. They help women who are drug addicted or not, but women that have been sexually exploited or are leaving lives of prostitution to help rebuild their lives. And so 514.com, I believe, is the way to get in touch with them. Um, and right now we're still building our partners, right? And one of the things I really am interested in is uh, this idea of regulating recovery housing. Uh, recovery housing is not regulated currently. And one thing that I think I'm becoming really passionate about is not putting people in states of homelessness because they've broken a rule. Mm-hmm. And so while well, I don't have a resource for that, it is something I'm really interested in and how God might be calling me into this further work of advocacy for, for people who are in recovery that find themselves in living in halfway house situations. Great. So I'm going to invite you for your homework this week to, and this is simple, look at yourself once a day in the mirror and say, I was made in love by a God who said, I am good. And spend some time in that space. Let the rest of it go for just a few moments and spend some time in that space. We will see y'all back here next week. Thanks, Meg, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.